It's Central Time. I'm Shereen Seward, and for Rob Verrett, you're with us on the Ideas Network. The website Money Supermarket recently came out with a list of what it calls the scientifically scariest movies of all time. They based their list on measuring people's heart rates while watching different films, and they came up with the 2012 film Sinister as the most terrifying. Now, that's just one very specific way of ranking horror movies, but it got us thinking what really makes a film scary and which movies have done it best over the years? We're joined by a film expert right now to talk about some of the spookiest movies of all time. We want to hear what you think, too, at 800-642-1234. What is the scariest movie you've ever seen? And what do you think makes for a really good scary movie? Is it the atmosphere, a good villain, or something else? Are there any scary movies you've seen recently that you liked, and why do you like them? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email us at ideas at wpr.org. Jocelyn Saponiak-Grulis is an associate professor and the director of film studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee Film Studies Program. Jocelyn, welcome back to Central Time. Thanks for having me, Shireen. It's so great to be here. You're a movie buff, but... You know, studying film is your job. You love horror. What is the scariest movie you've ever seen? Oh, my gosh. I I am a huge horror buff. I don't teach a lot of horror, but I watch a lot of it. Um, I've seen so many scary movies, and I had to think about this because, you know what, the scariest movie I've ever seen has to do with my age and the place where I saw it. It was Poltergeist because I saw it at 7 on TV, and it scared me out of my mind for about 10 years. I couldn't sleep with a closet door open until, well, you know what? I probably still can't, and I'm 45, Shireen. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I remember how much that film scared me, and I'm 55. So I was older than you when I saw it, and I still was really scared by it. So what is it, though, about horror specifically that interests you so much? What is it that draws you in? Yeah, it's such a kind of hard question because I think that So many of us have this attraction to horror. Why should we want to watch something that makes us upset, right? There's plenty of things in real life for us to get really upset and scared about. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of catharsis in watching um, something really terrifying happening. Um, When we know that we're in control, we can turn it off at any moment. Um, So that's kind of a way that we often think about uh, why horror is so appealing. But I personally also think about Um, this incredible balance that horror has between the known and the unknown and the kind of promise of terrifying knowledge, the revelation of terrifying knowledge as somebody who is somebody who uh, does, you know, work with knowledge as my, that is my job as a college professor. I just find that so appealing and that's a central component of horror um, since its inception, really. And that's really what I love about it. Well, I have to say that some of the movies from way back are the ones that scare me most, despite the fact that movies have come a long way. I mean, we have all yeah. these great effects now that can can mimic that you know frightening experience. But yeah. Jim from Arborvita called. Uh, he couldn't stay on the phone, but he, he thought so, too. He said to say the movie The Uninvited from the 40s is one of the scariest he's ever seen. Why is it those old time movies just are so frightening still? I love The Uninvited. The Uninvited is, like, genuinely scary. <laughs> it is definitely not a contemporary movie. I mean, that's almost, you know, what, uh, almost, it's, we're getting close to 80 years um, since that film has come out. Um, 
But, you know, I think that that's a great example of a film that relies on atmosphere and on implication. Um, I don't really find something like, like the Saw movies that scary. You know, they're gross. They're really disgusting. They're upsetting. But they're not scary in the same ways because they don't have that threat of implication. And when we look at films from um, an earlier point in time when it really wasn't common to have um, excessive score or um, all sorts of kind of outrageous effects, um, we looked at how filmmakers could use things like shadow, use what is not seen, use, um, you know, what is behind a door that we never really see. And that, to me, that's what makes something actually really, really scary, when we never have that full understanding of what it is that we're watching. Jocelyn Sapaniak-Galise is our guest today on Central Time. We're discussing the horror movie phenomenon and why people love to be frightened by what they see on the screen. What's the scariest movie you've ever seen? We want to know. Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can email us to ideas at wpr.org. So do you go for atmosphere, for jump scares, a great monster? What attracts you most? Oh, my gosh, Shereen, definitely not a jump scare. (laughs) (laughs) I I am not a fan of the jump scare. Um, It's just I find it a little bit cheap. It does make me jump, but it's a little bit cheap. Um, I really love atmosphere. I love a Baroque set. I love um, I love a great villain. Uh, one of my favorite scary movie actors of all time is Vincent Price. Every time that he shows up in a movie, I'm guaranteed to watch it all the way through. He has this really kind of debonair, dashing quality where you both um, are a little bit frightened by him, but you also kind of want to hang out and have a martini with him. Uh, so oh, totally. And that face, voice right? of his, that voice of his just made, yeah, I know what you mean. And I'd love it to have a martini <laughs> with him. <laughs> he was a gourmand, you know. He was he was actually um, an expert cook and an amateur art historian and just a real man about town, but also made for one of, you know, one of the most uh, fantastic uh, movie villain actors that we've ever seen. Now, you've been watching some Japanese horror films lately. Tell us about those. I have. I'm really interested in um, when short stories are then, scary short stories are then um, made into or adapted into films. I I think that's really, really sometimes more interesting than even uh, scary novels being adapted because the filmmaker has a little bit more space, right? A little bit more um, experimentation possibility. So this this spooky season, I've been reading a lot of Edogawa Rampo, who is um, a Japanese writer, He's really famous for bringing the detective novel to Japan, but I really love his uncanny and strange, um, mysterious short stories. So I, I just read a novella of his called The Strange Mystery of Panorama Island that I would really recommend to everybody. It's really fabulous. It's it's just about 70 pages long, um, but it has this really strange atmosphere that's, that's all about um, visual technology in the 1920s. And I don't want to give too much away, But it was adapted into a film called The Horrors of Malformed Men that was made in the late 60s. And the director of The Horrors of Malformed Men was able to uh, kind of transform some of the implications of what Rampo was writing about and make it about the horrors of of radiation and the atom bomb in Japan. So I think Mm -hmm. it's a great example of how... Um, a really great scary story can can change in its political implications over time and be made into a really exciting, kind of outlandish, um, but fascinating, freaky-deaky horror movie. Let's find out what some of our listeners think. We have Rana with us from Cameron. Hi, Rana. Thanks for calling. 
Hi, thanks for uh, this show. I love it. Um, so when I was a kid, uh, I would guess I was about 13 maybe. I don't even know. The first Halloween came out with Jamie Lee Curtis. And what was so scary to me about that show was that um, I can't even remember what the guy with the hockey mask's name is. But no. he showed up everywhere, any time of the day, uh, day or night. And to me, that was such a surprise to see him in the middle of the day stalking someone or whatever he was doing. And then it was a scene, a setting that we were all familiar with. The babysitters at the house, we're mm -hmm. all familiar with Halloween, and these horrendous things are happening. Um, another favorite of mine is the birds. And again, I kind of come back to the idea that, well, we're all familiar with birds that are flocking, and it's not uncommon to see that, but it is kind of uncommon to see flocking birds that want to attack and mutilate people. So um, th those are my two, well, I could go on and on and on, but I'm going to leave it there for now. Thank you for the show. Thanks for calling, Rana. And uh, Jocelyn, I have to say, I agree with those. And, and I love what she said about the daylight because um, it's true. There was something so unnerving about seeing Michael Myers in the daytime in his mask, you know, just and, and not just things that go bump in the night. Yeah, I, I love Rana's examples, too. Um, I think what both of them kind of point to is how great horror movies sometimes bend the rules. Right. So we have certain expectations for how the genre operates. That's how genres work in general. Right. We love genres because we love um, knowing what beats are coming and seeing how the director will respond to those beats, whether it's a rom-com, whether it's a Western, whether it's a horror movie. But in both those examples, we have um, this slight bend to the rules. So in Halloween, Michael Myers shows up during the day. That's not how it's supposed to work. Right. right? Like things are just supposed to be at night. And that's part <laughs> of what makes it so scary. I think about the film um, It Follows from uh, just under 10 years ago, where also a lot of things happen during the day, but it bends the rules as well by having um, the, you know, the scary apparitions appear very, very, very far back in the shot. So you'll get these really, really beautiful kind of wide, um, long shots, but you'll see somebody coming from the very, very back of the shot. And you know, it was brand new at the time, really. Nobody had really done it in the way that, um, that that film had done it. And that's what made it so terrifying. So anytime you see a horror film bend those rules and do it effectively, that's a kind of watershed moment in the genre. Well, let's go to Jack from Fox Lake, who's with us and has a, a recommendation. Hi, Jack. Thanks for calling. Hi. Thanks for having me. Sure. Um, my all-time favorite horror movie was Black and White. There's not a drop of blood. There's no monsters, there's no ghosts in it, and it's called The Haunting. Oh, I I did see that a long time ago. Jocelyn, yeah. did you see that one? Oh, what a brilliant movie. Of course, it's based on the Shirley Jackson novel, The Haunting of Hill House. It's, it's just a phenomenal film. And again, it's all about implication. There's also wonderful use of sound in that film, right? Like the kind of knocking of the ghost in like hallways. It's, it's just fantastic. And it's also really wonderfully about, um, uh, and the book really deals in this as well, um, the kind of undercurrent of repressed sexuality from the main character that also is one of the things that threatens to, like, rise up to the surface. So I think it's a great example of how horror is always operating. Well, the batch horror operates on multiple levels. There's a level of the scare, but there's also the level of psychology. There's a level of ideology. There's a level of politics. And it's just, it's just a beautiful example. 
Appreciate you calling, Jack. Jocelyn Sapaniak-Gilis is the Director of Film Studies at the UW-Milwaukee. She's talking with us about the scariest movies of all time, and you can join in. The number to call is 800-642-1234. Why do you think we like to watch these movies so much, and why do you personally like them? Again, we'd love to know the scariest movie you've ever seen, so we can add it to our list. And is there a spooky movie that stayed with you, even if it wasn't the scariest? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Shereen Seward, in for Rob Ferret. Right now, we're picking up the conversation about the scariest movies of all time. Our guest is Jocelyn Sapaniak-Gilis, Director of Film Studies at UW-Milwaukee. Plenty of time for you to call in at 800-642-1234 with your all-time favorite scary movies. What makes them scary to you? Is it the jump scares, the atmosphere, or something else? Just let us know. 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Jocelyn, how can films scare us in ways that other media like theater or literature or video games just can't? Yeah, it's such a great question. I have been kind of turning this over in my head because it's something I've wondered myself as well. I mean, I've certainly gotten plenty of scares from a scary book or listening to something scary too. And I really think it's about the use of the frame because film plays a little trick on us. Right. It shows us this frame of action where we think, okay, everything that we need to see is contained within this frame. But in reality, um, it's often what's outside of that frame that matters more. Um, In a normal, you know, in a drama film, whatever, perhaps we wouldn't be thinking about this so much. But in horror films, that frame can actually be used to a very scary advantage because we can get lulled into a sense of complacency, right, with thinking that, well, we see everything that there is to be seen in this frame. But then in the best moments, right, in the best reveals of the best horror movies, we suddenly realize that there's so much more that's happening that we haven't seen at all. And I think it's precisely that kind of perceptual trick that film can play on us that allows us, that allows it to really manipulate our senses and give us that really intoxicating sense of terror. We have Scott with us now calling from Green Bay. Hi, Scott. Thanks for calling. Hi there. I just want to share uh, one of the scariest things ever happened to me. I went to see a matinee of when a stranger called back in the 80s. There weren't a lot of people in the theater, and as we were watching it, bit of a spoiler alert, when the the, the police call the babysitter back and tells her that the, the killer's in the house, a woman in the audience screamed, and there was only a handful of us in there. And to this day, I'm still... <laughs> And Brad, you know, impressed on me, that scream in the audience by this woman and has always left me with goosebumps whenever I think of that movie. Oh, that's funny. Scott, when, when, um, whenever you watch that movie again at that moment, do you hear that scream still in your head? Oh, oh yes. Even before that comes up, I'm hearing it already. So but it was just a great experience. I always laugh when I think of movies that give me goosebumps and it's when a stranger calls because of the scream in the audience. Oh, thanks for sharing that, Scott. I appreciate it. Yeah, Jocelyn, sometimes it's just the things that are going on around us, right? That, that scares you. It definitely is. It definitely is. I love that story so much. I, it's so charming. And I think it reminds us that um, 
you know, we can definitely get scared by ourselves. I'm not one to watch a scary movie by myself at home. You know, let me be quite frank about that. But there's something about seeing a scary movie with a group, right, where we all are experiencing the same sense of fear at the same time. I remember going to see um, The Descent with my uh, now husband in, it must have been 2007, I think that's when the film came out, which is um, a really great um, scary movie about uh, these women who go, um, who go uh, spelunking in this cave and find these horrible monsters. And the entire audience was basically screaming their heads off and throwing popcorn everywhere. And it was just like such a fantastic experience to see it like that because we were all experiencing this at the same time. And there's a real relief when you all kind of scream together. I, I just love that. <laughs> yeah, there is a, some kind of like group release, right? Yeah, yes. definitely. <laughs> we have Randy with us now. Randy is from Edgerton. Randy, thank you for calling. Yeah, I, I, I think Spielberg does a great job with uh, like Jaws because you never see the scare almost through the whole movie. You, you, don't, you never see the shark until, you know, later on and it's like, it just the anticipation keeps building all the time, mm-hmm. and and he did the same thing with Jurassic Park. You know, you know, you don't see the 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 big dinosaur. You you hear it coming, but then you know. And and I also like the fact when they they have stuff that's natural, like the birds. And the, mm-hmm. uh, there was a movie with Albert Finney, um, the a wolf, and I believe it was, and um, and it was about the wolves that came back, and they you know the the Indians said, oh, yeah, they're here, and, and they came back. They're like super wolves, and they killed all uh, the people that were sick and stuff, you know, And but they were hiding out, and, the, you know, it's like you don't see them till the end, and it's like, yeah, you know, it's all that creepy, you know. Yeah. Like and through the water and seeing the, the, lady, the, the lady swimming, and all of a sudden, and all of a sudden she's up there, boom. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, and, you know, Steven Spielberg is such a master, and Jocelyn – sometimes I think it's the music. You know, when you hear that Jaws opener, don't you just get a little chill still? Oh, definitely. Definitely. And like, it's all about that music and music can serve to really heighten any kind of emotional experience. Um, But it works really, really well with ramping up um, the suspense in a scary movie. I think about all of John Carpenter's movies um, with the fabulous synth scores. And, you know, for most of them, John Carpenter wrote those synth scores himself. Um, So they fit Mm -hmm. so interestingly and so beautifully with the rest of the film because they're written by the director. Um, So I think that's a great example of that wonderful marriage of sound and image. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go to Carrie from Milwaukee. Hi, Carrie. Thanks for calling. Thanks for taking my call. I'll make this real quick. Um, when I was a teenager, I did see the movie Carrie, and I, as a teenager, did look like Sissy Spacek. Oh, no. So when I was at the movie theater and the movie was over, I went to the bathroom, and there were kids backing away from me. They were oh. Like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And then to top it off, this was cute, too. I just had my graduation pictures done, and one was sitting at my aunt's house, and my cousin came home with his with his boy, with his friend, and he's like, "Oh my God, who is that?" He says, "That's my cousin Carrie." The guy started screaming. Oh like, no! It's so funny. So <laughs> to this day, when I introduce myself, I say Carrie, as in the movie, and then people they're like, "You Carrie?" <laughs> no, it's cute. And so, like I said, I mean, I'm 65, and I I live that movie every day. So. Oh my goodness, that is. Thank you for sharing that with us, Carrie. And and that's that movie is really scary. I think. And who can forget the the blood over the head? You know, I mean, oh, they're all gonna laugh at you. you know? 
I know, I know. And I just really hope that Carrie has gone as Carrie for Halloween. Like, I really <laughs> want that to be real. <laughs> I know. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate that. Let, well, let's, uh, we've got about a minute left. Let's take one more call here. Let's go to John from Belleville. Uh, John is with us now. Thanks for calling, John. Hey, thanks for having me. Sure. Uh, my scary movie was as a kid. In the theater, I saw Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Oh, yeah. and uh, Love that movie. So intense because you couldn't go to sleep or you were going to turn into a zombie. Oh, yeah. And the way the movie ended, all of them were being um, transported into the town. You didn't know if they were going to succeed in intercepting them or not. These pods, you know, that uh, end up becoming your duplicate and but it was not you anymore yeah exactly thanks john jocelyn is that on your list too invasion of the body snatchers definitely i assume we're talking about the 70s and not the 50s version (laughs) um both are excellent but the 70s one is really my favorite um and it's i mean that moment the paranoia in that movie right like your neighbors are being replaced your friends are being replaced your loved ones are being replaced it's such a it's such a a fascinating moment of paranoid filmmaking that's then encapsulated into a horror film. That's what the horror, best horror films do, right? They tell us about the politics of our current moment and enable us to deal with our anxieties around our contemporary world. And that's a great example of a film that still has that kind of urgent power. Well, Jocelyn, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. This has been such a fun discussion. I have uh, all so kinds fun. of all kinds of movies on my list now. It was so fun, Shireen. I'm so glad we're both terrified of poltergeist. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> Jocelyn Sapaniak Gleese is an associate professor and the director of film studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. She talked to us about her favorite horror films and some of the scariest movies of all time. I'm Shireen Seward, and for Rob Ferret, you're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. Listening to Central Time, I'm Shereen Seward in for Rob Ferret. Now, whether you're stocking your first kitchen or adding to your growing collection, it's sometimes hard to know which kitchen items are right for your personal cooking needs. We talk to the authors of The Ultimate Guide to Kitchen Gadgets, from wooden spoons to espresso machines and everything in between. You can join in at 800-642-1234. What are your must-have tools, appliances, and gadgets in the kitchen? Do you have a brand that you always trust to do the job? What's your favorite kitchen item to give as a housewarming or wedding gift? And what questions do you have for our kitchen gearheads? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Lisa McManus and Hannah Crawley are executive editors for America's Test Kitchen and co-hosts of ATK's Gearheads on YouTube. They're co-authors of the new book, Kitchen Gear, The Ultimate Owner's Manual. Hannah, welcome to Central Time. And Lisa, welcome back. Thank you for having us. 
So Lisa, yes. yeah, glad to have you. Lisa, When whether we're moving into a new place, our first place or downsizing, sometimes it's hard to know what we need in our kitchen and, and what we can safely leave out. So my question is, what are the absolute musts, the absolute kitchen essentials that we have to have to cover most of the bases? Well, we really think about it in terms of having a few pieces that will do different Uh, multiple things for you. So I would say start with a good 12-inch skillet because you can always cook less food in a big skillet, but not the other way around. Um, We love cast iron. Um, That's a good all-purpose skillet. We love a Dutch oven, which is a big pot, Um, at least six quarts, seven is fine too. That gives you a lot of flexibility in cooking soups and stews or doing anything really big. We bake bread in that deep fry in that. So the pieces that you choose really give you some flexibility. You want a really good chef's knife that's nice and sharp, a good cutting board, gives you plenty of space to chop things. Um, And really that's, you know, with those couple of pieces, you can really start and build from there. Hannah, what do you think about single-use gadgets like apple cores or potato mashers, things that are just for one thing? Do you think they're worth the space or... Could we accomplish the task without them? I think if they're worth it for you, they're worth the space. Like your examples, for example, Lisa has an apple core that she loves and uses every year and it brings her absolute delight in the fall. So I think that's worth it. And also like potato mashers, for example, we do different things with potato mashers. So I think that sometimes you can think creatively and they're not actually a one hit wonder. And part of our book is talking about getting, um, more use out of quote-unquote single-use gadgets and seeing what else they can do for you so you don't end up with a lot of clutter you're not using and you use the tools you have. Hannah, give me a couple of examples. Like what can you do with a potato masher besides just smash potatoes? Uh, They're actually great for making guacamole. Mm. Um, Believe it or not, they can mash perfectly but not too finely, Um, especially if you have one arm, which I did when my arm was in a sling and found (laughs) this out. You found out the hard way then. <laughs> I did. It was worth it though. Lisa, I'm, I'm going to ask you, What are there things that are really just a gimmick, things that you can safely say, you know, forget it. You just don't need that. Oh boy. Of course, I can't think of a thing right in this moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you don't really need chopping devices. If you have a good knife and you keep it sharp and you have a cutting board, you don't need all kinds of specialized choppers. There's so many things on the market just to design to not have you use the knife you already have. Hannah, what are some new or trendy kitchen items? Any any new essentials that you've tried that you really like? New essentials. Well, I think we are all so into these indoor pizza ovens that can get like professional pizza oven temperatures, like the Breville Pizzaiolo and a new model from Uni. And they're just so fun. And the pizza they make is incredible. And it's just like a reason for a party too. I love that. Like, I'm like, come over, I'm making pizza. And and you can really personalize all the pizzas. Uh, on the other hand, they are $1,000. Um, oh, Lisa wow. and I are going to do coming. I know, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, upcoming episode on gearheads of these two there's really two top models in the game right now one from breville and one from uni so we're going to battle it out in an upcoming episode of gearheads called the battle ultimate battle of the thousand dollar pizza ovens do you feel like those prices will come down eventually when when more uh manufacturers come out with them 
I I sure hope so, but I do think they're also pretty pricey to get something that can sit indoors on your countertop and get up to, you know, eight, nine, a thousand degrees. Yeah. I mean, they're pretty cool though. I mean, I've, I've seen oh, some videos and, oh boy, it's on my want list, but man, it's so steep. Lisa McManus yeah. and Hannah Crawley are executive editors for America's Test Kitchen. They are co-hosts of ATK's Gearheads on YouTube, co-authors of the new book, Kitchen Gear, The Ultimate Owner's Manual. Is there a kitchen gadget that transformed your cooking regime? Call in, 800-642-1234. So, Lisa, if we're going to shell out big bucks for an appliance or item, pizza aside, are there items where cost really does equal quality? Um, Very, very often we can find things that have some of the qualities of the top-priced items that are more affordable. Um, But occasionally you do need to spend a little more. Um, we've tested a lot of food processors, for instance, and, you know, our favorite is around $200. You can get a cheaper one, but they really don't perform on the same level. Um, blenders, we have a mid-price blender in the $200 range. When you get around 100 and less, they're just, you know, big counter decorations. They don't do anything. Yeah. They get stuck right away. So sometimes you got to pay a little more, especially if you're doing a lot of asking a lot of that appliance. Yeah. Hannah, what about the opposite? Where where are there some high-end versions that are really just the same as cheap ones? I mean, where you could save money by, uh, you know, just opting for the less expensive version. Is there a certain appliance that comes to mind? Well, the first thing that comes to mind isn't an appliance necessarily, but like a good kitchen knife. For example, our winner from Victorinox is about 40 bucks. And you can find gorgeous knives that, you know, get into several hundreds of dollars and Trust me, they're fantastic, and I want one too. But this $40 knife from Victorinox does a heck of a good job. And so I don't think you have to spend a ton to get great performance on a knife. Sure. Hannah, we we have some Facebook comments that came in. Jacqueline said that her hand-crank pasta maker was a waste of money. Do you think those hand-crank pasta makers are worth it? (laughs) Um, It's funny. I have one. I love it. I haven't used it in two years, so I feel her pain. I think it's like, oh, they sure are fun. If if you use it, it's worth it. Again, like if you use it, it's worth it. Me, I still want mine now that I have it. Someday I'll have a pasta party, but like, no, I, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I'm not using that every weekend by any means. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know I have one too, and um, I've only used it once, but I loved it when I used it. So it's, it's, Exactly. Yeah. Well, Lisa, for... Gearheads like you two is probably unrealistic to stick to just the basics. How do you manage space in your kitchen to store it all? I, I mean, this is something that I struggle with, trying to find where to put everything. Oh, definitely. I mean, we do have some tips for how to store things. Uh, one thing I'll say is if you want to use a cast iron pan more, don't put it on a low or high shelf. Keep it on the same level as your stovetop, and you will be able to grab it and move it there more easily and use it more often. Um You can, we have ways to organize your spices, your utensils, and a lot of it just comes down to keep the things close to you that you use really often. And things like that pasta roller that you're only going to use a couple times a year, don't have it in a primo spot that you have to reach past to get the things you use every day. So really think about the core of what you're using and build out from there. And Lisa, I also want to ask you about cast iron. Why is cast iron so popular still? I mean, it's something that has been around forever. What makes it so superior in your in your opinion? 
I think two things. One is the reason it's been around forever is that that those pans are durable. You know, short of like, I don't know, running it over with a tank, they won't break. <laughs> There's yeah. nothing going to happen to them. So many things that we buy in this world wear out and a cast iron pan won't if you treat it with just any kind of uh, routine care that just keeps it in good shape. But even if, even if it gets rusty, you can scrub it, oil it, heat it and go back to using it. The other is that it's real thick material that is super heat retaining. So if you want some beautiful browning, whether you're searing something or you're baking something in it, like cornbread, or if you're searing a steak, you can get fantastic color on your food because it will retain that heat and then radiate it back. And it's really, it's a beautiful pan and it will last forever and it's not expensive. Right. Sometimes you can find them, uh, you know, at a thrift shop or a flea market for next to nothing. And but I guess my question is, what's the best way to take care of it? Hannah, how do you keep those cast iron pans clean? You know, this isn't something you can throw in the dishwasher. Yeah, definitely don't do that. Uh, You know, I've learned a lot from Lisa over the years. She really is our cast iron expert. And I think my favorite thing I've learned from her is that you don't need to use a ton of oil you know, so with a cast iron pan, after you use it, you want to wash it, you know, just a scrub brush and water is usually sufficient. You can use a little soap if you need to. And then you put it on the burner to warm up and dry off and just like a teaspoon of oil and rub it all around and then leave it on the stovetop to dry. Um, and I've, I've learned that from Lisa um, and it really works. And my cast iron pan is probably my, definitely my most used skillet. Lisa, what other things can't be thrown in the dishwasher besides cast iron pans? This is my endless, endless um, stump speech. It's like, don't put things in the dishwasher that don't have to go in there. Um, Because the dishwasher is a very harsh environment. So never put bladed tools. Your knives should not go in there. Your vegetable peeler. um, Anything that you want to keep sharp, don't put in there. Because the long time that it stays hot and wet and this strong soap is going to just degrade the edge you also don't want to put anything that's wooden in there wood is a natural material it will soak up that water and then as it dries it cracks Um, so you're going to shorten the lifespan of anything wooden cookware doesn't really need to go in the dishwasher either and if you uh you know put it in there we found some pans really get very degraded by it a straight aluminum baking sheet will turn darkened um the edges of a stainless steel pan may erode a little bit and become sharp oh i do you know that. you just really want to pay attention to what you're putting in there use your glassware your dishes your your silverware in there but a lot of the cooking utensils uh set yourself up to comfortably and quickly wash them by hand yeah, and I'm going to admit right now, I do that. I I am lazy. I I do that. So, but I'm, I'm not going to do it anymore. We're, we're with Lisa McManus and Hannah Crowley, executive editors for America's Test Kitchen and co-hosts of ATK's Gearheads on YouTube, talking with them about their new book, Kitchen Gear, The Ultimate Owner's Manual. And we want to hear from you at 800-642-1234. Is there a big ticket kitchen item that you think is worth the price tag? How about an item you regret buying? Is there a seemingly silly gadget you have in your kitchen that's actually quite useful? What's your 
desert island kitchen item, the, the one thing that you just, de- desert island kitchen item, the one thing you just couldn't live without, call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post it on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll pick up this conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Shereen Seward, in for Rob Ferret. Right now we're picking up our conversation with Lisa McManus and Hannah Crowley, executive editors for America's Test Kitchen. They're co-hosts of ATK's Gearheads on YouTube and authors of the new book Kitchen Gear, the Ultimate Owner's Manual. We're talking to them about how to select, use, and maintain your kitchen equipment. You can call in at 800-642-1234 if you have an item in your kitchen that has held up throughout the years or even decades or have a question you'd like to ask. 800-642-1234. Hannah, usually when we're in the kitchen, we're dealing with heat, right? I mean, I'm wondering... Which materials should we be mindful of not getting too hot, whether it's in the oven or on the stove or microwave? And which materials can withstand the highest heat? Great question. We do a lot of thinking about this. And especially right now, I'm sure that folks have heard, you know, just in the zeitgeist concerns about plastic. So we are very cognizant of when a a product has plastic on it or in it and nonstick, like what is layered on your skillet and in many, many things in your household, inside your ketchup bottle, um, on all sorts of utensils, all over the kitchen. Um, that's a thin layer of plastic to prevent things from sticking. And you don't want to get that too hot because it can off-gas. And it off-gases at around 500 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's when there are fumes coming off of the pan that are not good for you to ingest. Um, so you want to be really careful of anything that has plastic. and um, on the opposite side, you want you can take carbon steel and cast iron, you know, take those as hot as you want, put them on the grill, put them on the stove. You can't put them in the microwave, but mm-hmm. other than that, they are really versatile and super, super durable. Let's go to Megan from Appleton. Megan is with us now. Hi, Megan. Thanks for calling. Hi, I'm looking to get my mother um, an immersion blender. She's got pretty bad um, arthritis, and so I'm looking for something that's ergonomical and um, will be great for when she's canning applesauce or pureeing soups. Oh, okay. Uh, Well, Hannah, do you have any recommendations for Megan? Yeah, we love the brawn. Um, Actually, we do quite a bit of testing looking at um, diminished options for folks with diminished hand strength as well, because that comes up for sure. Um, So I would check out the brawn. I would also, you know, see how, where the trigger button is to turn the product on, you know, make sure that's in a comfortable spot where she's got some strength um, going for her. And, you know, definitely check out our review and I can send you over something separately for her of uh, the best option there as well. And and this is all in the book too. Um, I think there are a lot of products that require certain angles or certain wrist or hand or arm strength. And we try to consider that too in testing. Um, We'll have lefties and righties and and folks of all different abilities because we're all so different. So we want to make sure we find tools that work for everybody. Thanks for that. That's really interesting and, and a really, really good information. I'm glad Megan called with that. Uh, let's talk with Dave now. Dave is calling from Madison. Hi, Dave. What's your question? Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. I have a glass top stove. I think they're becoming really common right now. 
And to my great annoyance, uh, the first time I used cast iron on it, it scratched it. So I can't use cast mm-hmm. iron. That's really sad. Uh, I do sometimes use my Le Creuet, um, you know, Dutch oven. I'm real careful with it. And then I also find with my older um, Revereware pots, they're not flat bottom, so they rock and roll and don't really heat very well. So I guess I'm looking for, you know, what do I what do I do? What are my good substitutes, or am I missing something in in the way I'm using cast iron? I'll take my comment off the air. Thanks. All right, great. Lisa, how about you? What advice do you have for Dave on the cookware? Um, well, yeah, with more people getting glass top electric stoves in particular, the flatness of the pan is kind of important. Um, you can use your cast iron, but again, you probably know this, that if you pull or drag or move it on the glass, you can scratch it. If you're doing things like using a heavy cast iron pot or pan, lift it gently, place it, don't slide it back and forth, um, don't drag it across the surface. Um if you want to work with those uh, that cookware that isn't quite flat, you can basically add a little more oil and give the pan more time to preheat. You're going to give it several minutes to let that heat spread through the pan so it's less dependent on full contact with each spot of the bottom on the, um, on the surface. And that will help mitigate that uneven bottom of the pan on that very flat top. It's unfortunate that it's so common because it's not a really great, glass is a terrible conductor of heat. And I know it looks sleek, but it's not the greatest way to cook. (laughs) Yeah, we all have it now. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mm -hmm. it's it's not a great stove design, I'll be honest. But the way to work around that is give your pans time to preheat fully. Maybe use a little more oil and let that that will convey some of the heat through it and carry it out a little bit better than if you're trying to use just a little tiny patch of oil because it will it will not transmit the heat as fully. Okay. Uh, well, thanks for the advice on that. Appreciate the call as well. John is with us now from Wanakee. Hi, John. You have a favorite gadget you want to recommend. What is it? Well, hello, everybody. Thanks for taking my call. Have you guys ever heard of a rotato? A rotato. A rotato. I don't think I have. Lisa Hannah, yeah, no? That, no, it doesn't sound familiar. What is it? It's it's one of those gizmos that you see on TV, believe it or not. And I, I don't know, I picked it up at Bed Bath or Beyond or something like that a while back, started using it, and then they discontinued them. I went and bought two more because I liked it so much just to get the blaze <laughs> for it. Essentially, you stick a potato on it and you put the little arm on it that has a blade and you you crank it, you turn it, and it does a beautiful job of peeling apples and potatoes and anything that you need to peel. It's super easy. I've actually taken a potato and peeled and peeled and peeled and peeled and peeled until it's a half an inch in diameter, and all those shavings make great hash browns. It's a mm. it's a really ridiculous little tool, but I love it. It's the greatest thing. And I have a brawn full immersion, immersion blender, and I love it. All right. Great advice. Thanks, John. We'll have to try that. I appreciate it. We've got about a minute left, and and I just want to ask, I mean, your book has this helpful gift-buying guide. I'm just wondering if there's a can't-go-wrong gift you recommend for weddings or housewarmings. Lisa? I love our favorite little salt cellar and a box of Malden's Flake Salt. 
it's a wonderful little way to for especially for housewarming um it's a beautiful little square box with a cedar lid that stays open so you can reach them with one hand and a box of beautiful flaked malden salt which is great on salads and all kinds of things i think it's a nice little gift and they're so pretty briefly hannah do you have a favorite a, a can't go wrong gift you recommend Sure. Well, for a wedding, if you're going to splurge, of course, a Le Creuset Dutch oven is a fun choice Um, for like a housewarming or something like that. I love to gift a quarter or an eighth of a sheet pan. It's such a funny little gift, but you can tie like a cute bow on it and, you know, give it to them with a bottle of wine and they will call you in a month and be like, I use this thing every single day. Fantastic. I want to thank both of you, Lisa and Hannah, for joining us. This has been a great discussion. Thank you so much for having us. Lisa McManus and Hannah Crawley are executive editors for America's Test Kitchen. They're co-hosts of ATK's Gearheads on YouTube and co-authors of the new book, Kitchen Gear, The Ultimate Owner's Manual. They talk to us about kitchen equipment, how to choose it, how to use it, and how to make it last. Coming up Monday on The Morning Show, the new Wisconsin State Toxicologist at the State Laboratory of Hygiene joins to talk about the lab's public health and environmental focus, along with issues facing labs around the state. Also, the state capitol report happens on Monday as well on The Morning Show. Radio lost a pioneer this week. Dusty Street was a legendary DJ who began her career spinning records in San Francisco in the late 60s. She went on to work for K-Rock in Los Angeles and more recently Sirius XM. Dusty was one of the first women to control the mic on rock radio when broadcasting was almost entirely male voices. She was revered for her vast knowledge of music, from jazz to classical to rock and beyond. Today, we take for granted that women are DJs, but she paved the way. She carved out space and made radio all the better for it. She was 77 when she died last week. Dusty was known for leaving each broadcast with the same phrase, Until I talk to you again, babes, fly low and avoid the radar. Here's to you, Dusty Street. This is Central Time. 